true life and music history. The Ants Human Stars podcast with your hosts, Caleb and Digo. Are you ready? Steady. Go. Now, for your listening pleasure, it's story time. It's story time. It's story time. Check it out. What's the name that you think of when you hear the song title, I Will Always Love You? No, you did it. I did. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I'll sit back. No, that was a real question. That wasn't rhetorical. (laughs) Only one thing. Exactly. Well... I'm going to tell you all about the life of that song before it was rebirthed by Whitney Houston and how it ended up um, becoming... Makes me curious just thinking about it. I know. I'm going to let you know how it ended up becoming arguably her signature song. I would say that that is her signature song. She has a lot of big, other big ones, but that was... Yeah, that the is, music video, she's sa- sitting down while down. she's sleeping. She's sitting <laughs> down. She's like, not I ain't even got to stand up. Exactly. I don't even got to stand. I ain't got to stand up. Yeah. Uh, history of the song. Let's go. The song was originally written by Dolly Parton in 1973, and a lot of people know that, mm-hmm. that the song was written know. by Dolly Parton. But let's go back a little ways before even 1973. So, in 1967, she was invited uh, by country star Porter Wagner to co-host his TV show. And they became famous on the TV show for their duets. Um, but eventually she uh, started to take off her career and her popularity and it eclipsed Porter's. Um, and so she decided that she wanted to move on to go do different things. And of course, you know, he wasn't happy with that. He thought it was a mistake. I can only imagine as much as I think I'm a nice level headed person. You had a TV show and you brought somebody on because you're like, hey, I like how this is going. And then they just like. It, it takes a very special person to be like, I'm happy for you. I'm happy that this could have, this was the launching pad for you. Especially when they're saying like, hey, this was great, but now I'm going to leave because I'm going to go do something bigger. And much like, uh, uh, what's his name? Barry Gordy felt when, you know, the Jacksons left Motown because they were huge. And then it's like, oh, you have the bigger record company offering us more money and bigger deals. Or, you know, when Diana leaves and blah, blah. And it's like it would make you feel a certain kind of way um it's like when you leave me out of this podcast <laughs> stop stop <laughs> this is a dual venture okay i'm about to be you're about to be huge so she wrote this song for him and that was her way of showing her appreciation for their time together she said that so oh, after she, that's, she wrote that song for him yeah um so she had like said that hey she she wanted to leave she wrote the song and then literally the next day she went and she sang it for him um she said he was in tears after she finished and he called it quote the prettiest song i've ever heard um she's quoted as saying i wrote that song to say here's how i feel i will always love you but i have to go um so yeah so that wasn't even about love it was just like to a friend yeah, it was a friend love. Like, hey, I love you. I love the time we spent together, blah, blah, blah. But this is it. So on March 18th, 1974, the song was released as the second single from um, Dolly Parton's 13th studio album, Jolene. Um, and during its original release in 1974, it reached number four in Canada on the Canadian RPM country tracks. 
Oh god, that's gotta be a that's gotta be like a, a stick and a twist though. It's like here's but, a song for you that got me even more famous. <laughs> and I'm leaving you even more hard. Yeah, no, no, no. Seriously, yeah. Cause then the song uh peaked at number one on the Billboard Hot Country song charts, um, and became one of the best selling singles of nineteen seventy four. Um, and so it was huge for her. It was a big song for her. It was a big hit in 1974. I want to say, I didn't do the research, but I think she like she might have won a Grammy for it that year, too. Stuck it in and broke it off, dude. Yeah. <laughs> He's going places with this. Um, so here's, we're going to start right off the bat with some some fun facts as we're talking about the birth of the song or where it went. So after that was a huge hit for her in 1974, Elvis um, decided that he wanted to cover the song. Um that bitch and of course because it's elvis you know dolly parton was like yeah that's 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 awesome elvis's manager uh colonel tom parker told her that it was standard procedure for the songwriter to sign over half of the publishing rights to any song elvis recorded so he was like yeah so he was like let me take your song but it's half mine now basically that like hey if you allow us to record this thanks and also we're going to take half the publishing I just want to break it down for everybody because I'm breaking down a lot of this song. Publishing is like all the royalties. She wrote this song by herself. And so that would mean that every time his version was sold or her version was sold, they are getting half of, you know, the money, half of the sales off that, which is just it's crazy to think that anyone would even have the balls to suggest. That's that's like me saying, like, okay, Digo, I want to read your book and if you allow me to read it on air or whatever, then I want half of all the sales. Right. Like, what? Okay. Cocaine is hell of a drug. Seriously. Um, the balls. So in an interview with CMT, um, Dolly Parton was uh, quoted as saying, I said, I'm really sorry. And I cried all night. Um, I mean, it was like the worst thing. You know, it's like, oh, my God, Elvis Presley. And other people were saying, you're nuts. It's Elvis Presley. I mean, hell. I'd give him all of it. I said, I can't do that. Something in my heart says, don't do that. And I just didn't do it. Um, And they just didn't do it. Um, But I always wonder what it would sound like. I know he'd kill it. Don't you? Um, He would have killed it. But anyways, so he didn't. Then Whitney Houston's version came out and I made enough money to buy Graceland. (laughs) Exactly. Um, To this day, Dolly Parton got all the royalties. Whitney Houston got... So when you sing someone else's song, like if you wrote a song for Mm me, you get a cut because you wrote it. And and if you you had done the music, you get a cut of that. But I, as a singer, get like a small cut because I sang it. Mm -hmm. But you're getting most of the Mm -hmm. money because you wrote it. It's your song. I'm just the one doing the interpretation. Whatever she gets from tours and whatever. Yeah, so she she made plenty of money off, off off Whitney's version. Like... Anyways, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to all that. So um, she was also saying, uh, she was also quoted as saying in, two, in 2004, she said one of the reasons why she didn't, um, explaining why she didn't give it to Elvis, she said, my songs were what I was leaving for my family and I wouldn't give them up. People said I was stupid. I cried all night. I would have killed to hear him sing it. But eventually when Whitney recorded it, I was glad I held out. Then, in 1982, she re-recorded the song for the soundtrack to the film The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Um, And the track was issued as a single once again. And once again, it charted as number one on the Hot Country songs, making her the first artist ever to earn a number one record twice with the same song. When was this? In 1982. Mm. Um, 
Also, the 1982 version reached number 53 on Billboard's Hot 100 um, and number 17 on its adult contemporary charts. Um, and to this day, it remains the only country song to reach number one in separate decades. Also, I say the Billboard Hot 100 a lot. I just want to explain. The Billboard Hot 100 is literally the chart for any genre. Mm-hmm. So whether it's country, rap, rock, pop, whatever. Based on sales. Yeah, based on sales. Yeah. So if it's charting on the Hot 100, like if you get a number one on Hot 100, that means it's huge because it's like you're beating out every other genre. Yeah. Anyways. Um, yeah. So it also was another hit for her in 82. Then comes 1992. Whitney Houston is making her film debut in the movie The Bodyguard. Damn, just like um, teary-eyed again. Exactly. <laughs> she was originally going to record a cover of Jimmy Ruffin's song, What Becomes of the Broken Hearted, um, as the lead single. But when it was discovered that it was going to be used for the film Fried Green Tomatoes, Whitney requested a different song be used. And it was actually her co-star, Kevin Costner, who suggested I Will Always Love You. What? Yeah. Kevin. Um, yeah. You changed so history. Kevin Costner. Yeah. You yeah. just changed his because I, I think of Whitney, I think of that song. I think of the nineties, I think of that song. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Fuck the um, other one. Titanic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, fuck that one. Um She's good, but you need to what she ain't no Whitney. She good, but she, but she ain't no Whitney. Um and so he played her the Linda Ronstadt's Linda Ronstadt's cover, um, her nineteen seventy five version. But when Dolly heard that they were using Linda Ronstadt's version as like the template, she called the producer David Foster. David Foster is the one who rearranged the song as a soul ballad from Dolly's more like country standard Mm -hmm. version. Um, And she gave him the final verse to the song, which was missing from the Ronstadt version because she said she felt it was very important to the song. So in come Clive Davis. We talked about Clive Davis before. He's he's the... um, Head of Arista Records at this time in the 90s. We talked about him. We talked about TLC, Waterfalls, and how. Mm, that one. Mm-hmm. I, and once I'm doing all this history, I'm just like, for someone who is so influential, like, he pushed back on things that then became hits. And then, of course, at the end, it was like, ah, yeah, it was so great. It was so great. Anyways, so he was the head of Arista at the time, which is, you know, Whitney's company. Um and he was puzzled by the song choice. And he also particularly didn't like the acapella introduction um, to the song. So just him and also just a lot of the other heads at the label. Um, but Whitney and Kevin, they really pushed for it. Um, Kevin's quoted as saying, I said, this is a very important song in this movie. I didn't care if it was ever on the radio. I didn't care. I said, we're also going to do this acapella at the beginning i need it to be acapella because it shows a measure of how much she digs this guy that she sings without music um also fun fact whitney's recording isn't the only version that's played in that movie um during the scene when her and kevin costner are dancing um there's a version by john doe that is being played on the jukebox Hmm. also fun fact to that fun fact there's no which well, I read that there's no full recording of his song like available. It was just like it's in that movie, like. But you can't no like to sign on to Spotify and let me hear John Doe's version. Um. Hmm. So, anyways, so again, they stuck to their guns. They got the song in the movie, and 
done the way they wanted to. And after its release on November 6, 1992, the rest is history. Here comes the fun part. I'm going to run down because I want you and the listeners to understand just how big and massive of a was song second grade. this was. I was in second grade. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? What is going on? Um, this song was huge. So it's been 14 weeks at the top of um, the Billboard Hot 100, which at the time was a record. Um, it became Houston's longest uh, run at number one, surpassing her previous record of three weeks with The Greatest Love of All in 1986. Um, it was also the longest running number one single from a soundtrack album. Um, it debuted at number 40 on the Billboard Hot 100, but then and became uh, Houston's 10th number one entry two weeks later. So it also dominated on other Billboard charts, spent 11 weeks at number one on the Hot 100 Airplay. It, renamed, it remained number one for five weeks on the Hot Adult Contemporary Tracks and 11 weeks on the Hot R&B Singles Chart, becoming the longest running number one on the R&B charts at that time. Um, it remained in the top 40 for 24 weeks. It also was Arista Records' biggest hit. Uh, the song stayed at number one in the United States throughout January and February of 1993, making it the first time Billboard did not rank a new number one single until March of the new year. Because, again, it was released in November of the previous year. It was also the year-end single of 1993 in the U.S. Also in the U.K., it was ranked as the number one single of 1992. And then also made the countdown again in 1993, where it ranked number nine, marking the first time any artist or group had the same single ranked in the top 10 of the year in review two years in a row. Um, in Australia, it was number seven. It was number 17 single in 1992 and the number two song of 1993. It was a huge international success. I won't bore you guys with all the stats, but like the stats are worth it. Like it was remain number one in like just about every country for weeks on weeks. I mean, and this makes sense because, I mean, again, I was in second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. Still, it's on the radio. It is on the radio. It's all the time. It's that song that everyone knows. And I don't think I knew, because obviously I didn't see The Bodyguard when I was in second grade. Yeah. And then realized it's it's a fucking, it's from a movie? Mm-hmm. Like, it just made no sense yeah, to me. Yeah. I was like, how is this freaking iconic track just, quote unquote, just part of a soundtrack of, of some random movie? Which I miss that that uh, nobody does songs for soundtracks and then they're like a hit now. Well, not as much. No, no, no. People still do songs for soundtracks, but I mean in the sense of like that was a thing where yeah. you did a song for a soundtrack and it's huge. The, right. the you were most saying, songs, you were, most yeah. movies in the early nineties were definitely accompanied by some oh, major yeah. because major song it, it just went hand in hand you mm-hmm. have famous people making a movie and famous people singing for that movie it just made of course you would why wouldn't you yeah uh houston's 10-week reign in the uk set the record for the longest run at the top by a solo female artist in the history of the british single charts the only single to have topped the united states the united kingdom and australian single charts for at least 10 weeks it was a best-selling single in the UK for 1992 and for 1993 in the US. I said that already, sorry. Um, and it remains one of the top five best-selling singles of all time worldwide with sales of over 20 million copies. Um, now, just for somebody out there mm-hmm. who hasn't ever heard of this track and they're just like, what the fuck? And they're driving and they haven't been able to swap over to YouTube and just quickly listen to And you've been living under a rock for your whole life. 
or you're like four years old or something and shouldn't be listening to the podcast anyway. <laughs> Can you give us a little, just, just the first, just something you could, just a little sample. Let me see. <clears throat> How does it start? Oh. If I should stay, I would only be in your way. So I'll go, but I know I'll think of you every step of the way. Okay. <laughs> good stuff. It's Blown good stuff. away. I'm like, yeah. Uh, the song's mm. heartbreakingly amazing. Um, also, the single topped in 1993. I still got to finish with these stats because, I again, I just need everyone to know just how huge of a thing this was at the time. It topped the 1993 Billboard um, Hot R&B Singles Year in charts along with the Billboard Hot 100, simultaneously becoming the first single by a female artist and second overall to achieve that feat behind Prince's When Doves Cry in 1984. Um, in addition, it received favorite pop rock single and favorite soul R&B single awards at the 21st um, Annual American Music Awards, which is the first record by a solo female artist to win both categories. Um and the third overall in AMA history behind Endless Love by Lionel Richie and Diana Ross and Beat It by Michael Jackson. Um, so along at with, this point, like whoever was against this yeah. track was just like, <laughs> oh, wow, I was so wrong. So, exactly. So, wrong. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was breaking records, a huge hit. Also, it's a big critical acclaimed song. Um it was eventually it was later called her signature song stephen holden of the new york times said it was quote a, a magnificent rendition also saying houston transforms a plaintive country ballad into a towering pop gospel assertion of lasting devotion to a departing lover her voice breaking and tensing she treats the song as a series of emotional bursts and a steady climb towards a final full out declamation along the way her virtuistic gospel embellishments enhance the emotion and never seem merely ornamental. I think that that sums it up pretty well. And so among its many, many accolades, it won two Grammys at the 1994 award ceremony for record of the year and best female pop vocal performance. It was also nominated for uh, uh, an Oscar, but it didn't win. And I remember when I, because yeah, of course, as a kid growing up in the 90s, like you heard the song and it's like, oh, that's Whitney Houston, that's her song. But then I do remember, I don't know the year or how old I was, but I actually like listened to the lyrics and it was like, oh my gosh. Like the song is sad, I think, not so much because like you're leaving, but it's expressing that like how much you love the person and I'm leaving, but I want you to know how much I love you. Like it's, it's not, not a just cut and dry love song. Yeah, exactly. The soundtrack was the first album verified by SoundScan, and SoundScan is like they tabulate all the num the numbers on things. Well, I like ate all the prizes. All this. <laughs> 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 I ain't gonna say nothing. <laughs> um, 
There's a big uh, plate full of fries here. I literally got it for both of us. And I, because you're talking, right? I know. And, I'm, and I'm just like, like popcorn. I'm, I'm like, man, I don't want to rush through this, but I want to rush through this. Look, look, I'm going to put this way over there. Yeah, it was the first album verified by SoundScan to sell more than 1 million copies in a single week. Ladies and gentlemen, dare I say, is that how you say it? Dare I say, like, an artist will ever sell a million copies in one week again. Like, I don't know if that's maybe, maybe a single. I think it's possible that, that, that there's, a, you know, in the future, artists will sell a, a million copies of a single. And since then, the album has raked over 45 million sales globally, making it the top selling soundtrack of all time. Wow. So it was just, it was just huge, 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 huge. Uh, I want you to know that on our ride home, we're going to put on the whole track. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, I was just li- like, as I was crying. As I was putting this together, I'm like listening, like, oh my, I watched her. She opened the 1994 Grammys with this, singing this song. So after the success of Whitney's version, Dolly was quoted as saying, When Whitney did I Will Always Love You, I mean, look, what a grand song she made out of that simple, heartfelt, you know, song. It was just amazing. Whitney is one of. Whitney is the one who took it worldwide and really made it a household word or song, I should say. So, so I'll always be thankful to her for that. Um, and kind of also just a tidbit after the success of Whitney's rendition, people started taking um, Dolly Parton more serious as a songwriter because before it was just kind of like, you know, she's this huge, famous country legend, but you know, she writes her songs, but yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But that was really like, oh. She was quoted as saying, I was just a girl with a big hair and big tits and a big personality. But I think that one kind of pointed a finger at me as a serious songwriter and the fact that it did so well. And I was so touched by it. That one meaning the song. Um, And I was so touched by it and so honored um, by it. That one will stand out in my mind forever. Mm. The song was also played during Whitney's funeral. When she passed away in 2012. Um, Tear jerker. Yeah. But it's just interesting how, yeah, that it was her song. It was, she took it to number one on the country stars twice. Not only in 1974, I think it was, but also 1982. And then, but then, yeah, Whitney Houston came and sang it. And it was like a brand new song. And and arguably, yeah, people know that. I, I would go, yeah, as far as to say, people know that as Whitney Houston's song more than mm-hmm. Dolly Parton's song. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your music history for the day. Do you think she ever went on a cruise? I would imagine. No, she ain't going on no cruise. Famous people don't go on cruises. <laughs> They're like, look, just take me straight to the destination. Thanks for listening to the Ants Human Stars podcast with Caleb and Digo. Stay connected and get updates about new episodes by visiting our website, antshumanstars.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review, and share about us with your community on social media. Thanks, y'all. We really appreciate it.